Welcome to Wikistrat's line of geopolitical podcasts where we discuss current global events and unfolding developments in the international arena. This is Dr. Rebecca Malloy, the director of Wikistrat's Middle East community. And for this episode, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Shirley Yu, a leading global voice on China at the cross-section of global public policy, academia, media, and business. With a PhD in political economy from China's Peking University and a master's in government from Harvard, Dr. Yu is an accomplished expert in Chinese strategic and economic affairs. She is a senior visiting fellow with the London School of Economics and an Asia fellow with the Ash Center of the Harvard Kennedy School. I, I would like to give her a shout out here. She's also the creator of a New York-based business talk show called Hey China, so you can catch her on YouTube for that, and a daily intelligence and insight newsletter on China for Fortune Global 500 stakeholders called China Big Idea by Shirley Yu. Uh, also check her out there at chinabigidea.info. Dr. Yu is a frequent commentator on the BBC, Bloomberg, CNN, Al Jazeera, PBS Frontline, Channel News Asia on China. So we're particularly fortunate to have her with us today. We have a three-part uh, format for today's episode that will include a first segment that outlines the China-Australia trade war, the forces at play and their stake in the game, a second segment that offers an assessment of the unfolding trade war, and a third segment ending with Dr. Yu's foresight on what's next for China. So having said that, with this long intro, uh, we're going to deep dive and let Dr. Yu take over on what is at the core of this trade war. Thank you so much, uh, Rebecca, for that very generous introduction. I'm uh, enormously honored to have this opportunity to share some ideas and thoughts with our global experts uh, all around the world with uh, Wikistrat. The deterioration of the China-Australia trade conflict, I wouldn't necessarily call it a trade war, just because uh, it's a more, to me, one-sided at the moment, uh, primarily China's uh, actions towards Australia on the trade front, but it was uh, primarily triggered back in April when Australian Defense Minister Maurice Payne took to the world stage to call for a World Health Organization investigation into the origins of COVID-19. And in May, China started to impose punitive tariffs on Australian barley, and then China canceled the beef exports from four Australian abattoirs, and then lobster, timber, and wine, and then the latest Australian coal. It's important to understand that the triggers of this trade conflict between China and Australia is not a result of trade imbalance or a call for fair trade. Australia's trading goods to China has been largely uh, economically beneficial to both countries. China is not looking to reverse any sort of trade imbalance with Australia. The cause of, uh, the, cause of the trade conflict is uh, political, not trade. Therefore, the solution needs to be political as well, not economic. And also, I think it's important to understand the ends that both countries have in mind to achieve in the current series of actions. The end for China is uh, to seek respect and honor. China wants to be respected as the de facto economic leader of the region and indeed the indigenous power of the region, somewhere similar to the economic status that the U.S 
exerted post-1823 during President Monroe's era in the Americas. China asks for honor, to honor its unique path of development, and in a way, it's a path exceptionalism. China has just named the right to development as a part of its core national security architecture. The right to development encompasses the recognition of the legitimacy of its alternative economic development model, which is different from the West, and it's understood to be superior to the West according to the current Chinese dominant state discourse. And so now the end that Australia pursues it's a more liberal end. Current Australian government wants a clear end that is rested in Western liberal democratic values. China is a nation that's honed this uh, enormous capacity of statecraft over millennia. China adopts a dexterous means in order to achieve its political ends. And China can choose to heighten tensions, ignore tensions. Throughout China's modern development, we can see that a lot of the regional political tensions have been carefully managed and crafted to suit China's domestic and the international priorities of the time. We can see this in China's handling of its relationship with the United States, Japan, and India at the moment. China is going to manage this uh, wave of tension with Australia with that engineering level of precision as well. And, but on the other hand, Australia has also uttered very clearly both by its prime minister and its uh, senior cabinet members, it's Australia end with China. But we are short of hearing the specific means that Australia will resort to and within its own power to really enforce a liberal democratic end, both in theory and in reality. So by just uttering an end with that currently a proper means to achieving that, this really shows a level of statecraft that Australia, uh, I think, needs to engage in a way that China already masters. So no downward spiral in Asia will go down forever entirely you know, throughout the Chinese uh, long span of history, certainly not to China's relationship currently with Australia. And we have to take a long view in understanding the future of both countries and the Asia Pacific as a whole. So now I want to talk about the situation within the grander China's development context. Firstly, I want to talk about China's strategic needs. Post the COVID-19, China became the only major economy that will see a positive recovery uh, this year at about 2% GDP growth. However, this recovery is still very fragile. China's economic recovery has been primarily led by massive investments in infrastructure, and this time in particular, real estate developments. Starting in the second quarter of this year, China's real estate sector started to show positive growth and has since led to China's economic recovery. And as we saw, China actually has had a real estate boom this year. So all these infrastructure investment activities have translated into uh, China's uh, steady import of Australia's vital resource, the iron ore, and the appreciation of its price. China's demand is picking up while the global supply in the sector hasn't fully recovered. 
But China's consumption recovery is so weak. Earlier this year, we saw some pretty high inflation figures in the Chinese economy. But a lot of it, I should say, much of it is actually food inflation driven. So if、uh, food prices were left out of the equation, China's core inflation has been rather flat all throughout the year. And in November, China even went into a slight dip. Uh, into deflationary territory, so this is、uh, normal and indicative of a massive demand shock, such as the one that we are experiencing globally. But、uh, if we look at China's Double、uh, Eleven this year, which is China's annual sales event, Alibaba would not give a real-time revenue tracker this year on Singles Day, and I think it's pretty clear that more people have taken to online shopping this year, but vendors were selling. At the lower price margin, and so all of these suggest that although the Chinese economy is recovering, the consumption and services sector are still taking their time to pick up. How long can China continue to thrive with this、uh, infrastructure-led economic recovery? I think、uh, infrastructure investment will stay robust through 2021 and may possibly continue over the entire 14th five-year plan period. Within the 14th five-year plan, three of the major economic catalysts that the government has identified are named under the acronym of Two New, One Major. Two new are new infrastructure, new urbanization, and one major major construction projects. So, new infrastructure refers to digital infrastructure developments. New urbanization is about the clustering of cities into major metropolitan areas. And so, China is currently looking at four poles within its major metropolitan mapping over the 14th five-year plan: the Beijing, Tianjin, Hebei metropolitan area. Shanghai Yangtze River Delta area, the Greater Bay Development Area, and the Chengdu Chongqing Twin City Economic Circle. So all these require the cities and the rural areas within these、uh, metropolitan region to be connected via infrastructure, physical infrastructure, subways, railways, trains, etc. China is building its biggest free trade port in Hainan. It's looking at a circular road at the moment that will wire the whole island into one interconnected entity, and so there are over 150 infrastructure development projects going on in Hainan Island alone. The Chengdu Lhasa Railway is a major 14th five-year plan project, and the Yalu Zhangpu Hydroelectric Power Station project, when it's completed, is going to generate four times the hydroelectric power capacity than the Three Gorges Dam. And China has already clearly stated that this is a must-complete project. So we can see already on the map of China major developments that aim at upgrading China's urbanization, interconnectivity. And transportation that are already mapped out and happening on a massive scale, and all of which require iron ore and basic resources. And it's clear that China needs iron ore. The next question will be whether Australia will continue to be the dominant supplier of China's resources. Australia currently supplies sixty percent of China's iron ore, and China buys eighty percent. Of Australia's export of ore, China is already looking at diversifying its iron ore supplies with Africa, Guinea, etc. And so, the diversification for China's iron ore supply is inevitable. 
uh, this trade conflict with Australia may simply expedite that diversification process. And I remember back in 2016 when Australia supplied one third of China's beef imports, Australia was the absolute dominant beef exporter to China. All of a sudden, China opened up its uh, trade protocol with Brazil, and Brazilian beef flooded the Chinese market because of the price advantage. And within a year, Brazil overtook Australia as China's largest supplier of beef imports. Things happened very rapidly, and it took the Australian commercial sector a while、uh, to understand that it wasn't really any sort of、uh, Chinese. Political conspiracy at play there. It was just simply market forces, simple, simple supply and demand at play within a very massive and dynamic marketplace. And so the vulnerability with Australian trade, unlike that of、uh, the U.S. trade with China, is that Australia supplies primarily at the bottom end of the global industrial supply chain to China, or in the primary industry. These products do not really carry a lot of industrial value add, and are highly substitutable goods. And so the advantage that Australia has is a volume, economies of scale, and efficiency. But ultimately, that's not like selling an iPhone, where the margin on an iPhone is primarily driven by the intellectual property values that's within it. And so then, what are the possible remedies? A、uh, trade disruption in the resources sector will certainly hurt China, but it'll hurt the Australian economy as well, possibly more. And so we're starting to see blackouts across the major Chinese provinces currently due to the demand pickup in energy consumption, according to the local Chinese government's notice. Resources trade does matter greatly to China, and this trade disruption. May hurt the Australian GDP north of six percent in 2021, according to one Australian research, and so it's not doing good, I would say, to either party, on a grander scale. So China's a major pivot of its economic development model is to turn the country from the world's factory. To the world's market, the goal is to make China the world's largest importer in three to five years' time, and so China will focus on more imports, not only of goods but more importantly, imports of services into the country. Australia is the only、uh, major OECD economy that thrives on selling so many primary goods that are highly substitutable, and so this is a. Major vulnerability, I think, to its economic model. Australia can leverage this opportunity to upgrade its trade with China more towards services. For example, China's、uh, fintech development across the ASEAN region currently is vibrant. Australia has not been a very strong partner. On the digital transformation with China, and also China's、uh, Chinese companies are looking for alternative、uh, capital market destinations globally. Singapore is now primed to become the hub for China's wealth management services, and Australia can capture, should capture more trading financial services with China. And all these things should happen naturally. And maybe the opportunity is also for Australia to upgrade the industrial supply chain to move up. Uh, on the Asian、uh, manufacturing ladder as well, and the fourth question is: Where does this trade conflict really end? 
When the Japanese prime minister, former prime minister, visited the Yasukuni Shrine in the 90s, it has caused massive waves of uh, Chinese public resentments and protests. We can safely say that China's uh, uh, Chinese generations of hostility towards the history with Japan over that earlier part of the last century is a much stronger feeling than how China views about Australia. But uh, Chinese public sentiment towards Japan has always been carefully managed by the generations of Chinese leaders. Chinese leaders understand when these sentiments can serve best a domestic and diplomatic purpose and when it should stop. And if you look at China's difficult period with South Korea after the thought was installed, China's uh, difficult period with the United States after its embassy in Belgrade was bombed. When China and the Philippines took to the court in The Hague over South China Sea, it looked also very bad for a while. But China has always managed these uh, sensitive relationships very skillfully. India currently bans over 100 Chinese apps. And we don't really hear on a massive scale uh, within China protests, uh, newspaper retaliations, trade bans towards India within China. So rest assured, I think this Australian-China downward spiral won't be linear. China can masterfully control the end point of the tension at some point. The two countries will have an opportunity to recover the relationship, just like how China and South Korea, China and Japan are back on track as well, both countries need to be prepared for that moment. And if we look ahead, and if we really look further ahead, possibly in 30 years time, let's say by 2050-ish, the global economic center of gravity is going to continue to shift towards the Asia Pacific. And particularly now with the combination of the RCEP, the Asia Pacific region is welcoming an upgraded level of opportunity. China is uh, larger on an economic scale now than uh, that of the EU 27 economies combined. And China will be growing according to the Chinese leaders' uh, long-term vision 2035 that the Chinese economy will double again in the next 15 years. And that will imply a, uh, about a 4.7% GDP growth rate per annum over the next 15 years. And I give a high probability by 2050 that Asia Pacific, both China and Australia included, would be more prosperous. And if that's the goal, both Australia and China set out to achieve, the chance of success can be pretty high. And with a 30-year time horizon, it leaves a lot of room for imagination within the Asia-Pacific region as well. Both China and Australia will be dynamically changing. They won't be the same in 30 years' time. And also this uh, current trade tension, as bad as it looks now, it will be temporal rather than terminal. And cooperation will continue to be the dominant theme in the Asia-Pacific region, including China and Australia relationship. So, well, you moved obviously brilliantly through the three parts. Uh, there's not much more of a deep dive that I, um, that I would expect. Um, but I'm curious, um, how, if, if you were to describe this, this spiral um, uh, in just a sentence or two, uh, with regard to the potential implications and, and, and the industries that are most likely to get impacted, how, how would you do that? How would you describe that in just 
a sentence or two because this to me i mean what you brilliantly described uh to me that would be the crux to take away from this for chinese to today say i do not have to eat an australian lobster for chinese new year or if i don't have to drink australian penfolds that is a pain a Chinese could endure, but when it comes to resources trade, it does hurt the Chinese economy on a substantial scale. And so now we are starting to touch on the very sensitive areas of uh, trade in Australian coal. But let's hope that we just stop there. And I think the Chinese leadership and the Chinese uh, bureaucracy does have the capacity, I think, to rationalize the extent and the depth of this uh, China-Australia trade conflict. And because once we get through the coal area, if we further go down to touch on to the Australian uh, iron ore area, and I think then we really get into serious economic consequences to both economies. I, I believe that it, it will be a, a, a short-term pain rather than a long-term pain. It looks painful at the moment, but this also gives an opportunity for Chinese economic in, resource imports to diversify, but also it gives the Australian economy opportunity to either upgrade its in, uh, trade model with China and also to look for alternative markets for its vital trades and vital exports. And so I think it's going to offer an opportunity, just like any sort of trade conflict, for uh, either economies involved to recalibrate its uh, vital markets. But at the same time, I think just like what we talked about earlier with China's relationship with the other Asian neighbors, it's not always been friendly. And some of them are very, very sensitive. And China has always managed it well. And I think with this Australian relationship, it's hard for me to think that China-Australia relationship would just go from chilled to frozen to you know ice cold and, and stay there. There will be a point of suspension and then ration will take over and the, the relationship, economic cooperation and economic partnership will continue to dominate the economic discourse within Asia Pacific. And I'm sure within China-Australia relationship, the both economies, they are highly complementary and they need each other.